I am Gautam Kumra, Chairman of McKinsey Asia, and you are listening to the Future of Asia podcast series. The Asian century has begun. The region is now the world's largest economy. As Asia's economies evolve further, the region has the potential to fuel and shape the next normal. In each episode, we are going to feature conversations with leaders from across the region to discuss what Asia's rise means for businesses across the globe. Join us. Well, good morning. I'm Jonathan Wetzel. I'm a partner with uh, McKinsey and I'm director of the McKinsey Global Institute. And I am pleased to be joined today by Robin Harding, the Asia editor of the Financial Times. Robin previously was the Tokyo bureau chief for six years. And before that, he was based in Washington covering the U.S. Federal Reserve. He's responsible for steering coverage across Asia and managing the FT's award-winning network of correspondence, setting strategic priorities, and helping project the FT as a distinctive and authoritative voice in Asia. Welcome back, Robin. It's a pleasure to talk to you again. It was this time last year that we looked forward and backwards. Many unexpected things happened, so glad to have you back. Jonathan, thank you so much for having me again. Let's do the scary thing. <laughs> Let's look back and say, what surprised you about 2022? And what were some of the things that you would say, yep, saw that coming? So I tried to mark my homework and I, I went back and listened to our conversation last year. And one thing that's striking in that conversation is the word Ukraine is not mentioned once. I don't think we should beat ourselves up too much on a podcast about the future of Asia that we didn't talk about Ukraine. But clearly, that just shows the unexpected events that can materialize. And because we live in such a globally interconnected world, it was the Ukraine shock that led to the huge commodity price shocks and trade shocks, which were the big, I think, unexpected driver in Asia last year. So what did we get right? Well, I think most of the things we actually said on the podcast last year were fairly sensible. We talked about the delayed COVID reopening in Asia and the impact that would have both on perceptions and on the economies. And I think that was very much was the story in Asia, certainly in China last year. We talked about inflation and how that was going to be a big story. And the question was when it would peak out. And I think we were broadly on the money there. So I didn't think we did too badly. But what's going to be this year's Ukraine? Who knows? Right. Between the black swans and the gray rhinos. <laughs> we, uh, yeah. Living in quite the zoo here. And I think that we sh we can give ourselves passing marks. So let's <laughs> look for it. Yeah, we did our best. Forecasting, as, as everyone knows, is a bit of a mug's game. But we all have to do it because we have to make decisions under uncertainty about the future. So you've got to make your best guess at what may be coming down the tracks. All right. Well, with that as the lead in, let's look forward. So. As you see it in Asia, what are some of the things that executives should be stories that they should be paying attention to for the coming year? So when I look forward at the news environment for 2023, politically, this should be a relatively tranquil year because of where we are in the political cycle for the big players. By the end of the year, the US presidential primaries will be kicking into gear. But having just had the party congress in, in China, Xi Jinping's been confirmed for his third term. The first half of this year 
ought to be a period where progress can be made, where the US and China can try to re-establish more of a, a working relationship. The biggest story, at least for the first half of this year, should be some degree of rapprochement between the US and China. So we'll be looking out for that. Although I also think that structurally things have changed in that relationship. We're not going back to where we were. And everything we hear says that there are more US national security restrictions in the pipeline, that this doesn't end with semiconductors, that other technologies like AI in the biotech pharma area, there's more coming. So that's also a story that we'll be looking out for this year. If you turn to economics, I think the question is, will there be a recession in the US? And I think it's more likely that there will be a clear recession in Europe, given the energy price shock there. The forecasts for the US are a bit all over the place. I think there's quite a lot of uncertainty about whether it will be a soft landing or a hard landing for the US. And also there, you've got to look at how quickly will inflation come down and thus how quickly can the Fed pivot to lower interest rates. If they do, then obviously that will play out in Asia as well. On the other side in Asia is you know, the Chinese economy. How quickly will it bounce back? Certainly the sort of underlying state of China's economy is fairly soft at the moment. But the big unknown is how much and how effective will stimulus from Beijing be? I think it's certainly top of Beijing's agenda to get the economy moving again. So that's another thing that we will be looking out for. And then on the business side, I think we may talk more about EVs, but I think that's going to be a huge, huge story this year from Asia. The semiconductor supply chain, there's more to happen there. And I think we will start to see whether some of these big investments to diversify the semiconductor supply chain work or not. I'm pretty skeptical about whether they will work, but it's going to be a sort of year of realization for that. And yeah, there's lots more going on as well. So obviously AI is a big theme. How seriously to take it in 2023, I'm not so sure, but certainly it's one we'll be watching. Well, that's a pretty robust agenda. Let's look at different pieces of it. Start maybe with this regional or global perspective, the relationships between countries and navigating all of that, particularly for our executive audience. I mean, if you were to pick out one or two flashpoints, <laughs> sort of things that might be important to really keep an eye on. We mentioned semiconductors a bit. Would that be one of them? Or where would you see the, let's say, the most important area of contention? Well, I think that, as we all know, the US-China relationship is the most important international relationship in the world and is going to drive events throughout the 21st century. If you look at the nature of that relationship now, as I said a moment ago, I think it's changed quite structurally. And when I was in Washington, which is only 10 years ago, the mood was very much still, let's engage with China. As China gets richer, it will become more liberal, it will become more democratic, they'll move towards us. All we have to do is keep working with them and persuade them and things will get better. I think that mood has just gone away and there's no sign of it, it coming back. It's very much a mood of suspicion, competition, concern, 
national security people are driving the relationship with China, whereas previously the economic bureaucrats in the US had a, a bigger weight in that conversation. So I don't think any of that, that's changed structurally, and I don't think it's changing back. So the consequence of that is we should be expecting flare-ups in this relationship. It's hard to predict what the flare-ups will be. When we talked, had this conversation last year, think of things like Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, which the FT scooped incidentally and ended up having a big impact last year. So we can't see the individual things, but I think that we will see more of these flare-ups. And the big question is how well they can be managed and whether the US and China can manage to talk more such that the impact of the flare-ups can be minimized or whether they have the big disruptive effect like they did last year. So I I think that's the number one that you have to point to. There are plenty of other things around the region that could cause concern in 2023. In 2022, Sri Lanka's debt crisis was a big story, but there are multiple other countries, particularly in South Asia, which are in a very fragile condition. There are smaller ones like Nepal, which are economies of South Asia, are in real difficulties. So that's one to watch as well, I think. And in Southeast Asia, the repercussions of the geopolitical contest between the US and China play out. So each country in the region is in a slightly different situation. But what you see in all of them is internal questions about where they want to line themselves up and external pressures uh, where often the US is pushing them to do one thing or China's pushing them to do another. And that plays out separately in each different country. So that's the big picture. I mean, it's all shaped by the US-China relationship and post-pandemic fragility in a number of economies. Well, I mean, I can see that volatility being like a new normal here. So the flare-ups and the context of that being a less away from a narrative of steady progress, straight line, more about the zigs and the zags. But I think that the IMF has a global economy growing quite handily this year <laughs> going forward at around 3.2%. India is growing at 6 to 7%, give or take. And we say like China, we're not quite sure, but it's going to be a bounce back. It's less about direction, more about how high. I'm curious, from your point of view, should we be paying more attention to the Asia endogenous factors or the global exogenous factors in looking at this outlook for the Asian economies? Which matters more? I mean, I'd certainly say the Asian endogenous factors matter more. It's the nature of the news business that we look at the fluctuations around the trend. It's the earthquake, the war, the crisis at Company X that makes the news. But the trend, certainly in Asia, is relentless growth, as it has been for the last couple of decades. And when you look at the growth in economies like Vietnam or Bangladesh or increasingly in India, in Indonesia, which are countries with big populations, it's just dramatic. And the other thing is it's not population-driven growth anymore because the demographics in those countries, at least the birth rates, have dropped significantly. And they're now going through their demographic transition, their demographic dividend. So this is real per capita GDP increasing growth. 
and it's relentless across much of Asia. Even in China, I mean, bad years for Chinese GDP are still pretty good. And 2023 doesn't look like it'll be a particularly bad year. So the endogenous Asia growth story, the growth of the middle class remains as strong as ever. The exogenous factors cause the problems. So that's what causes things like a debt crisis in Sri Lanka or Pakistan. And those are still very important things because it causes an enormous setback to what would otherwise be good growth. And Sri Lanka is a case in point of an economy that had been growing very, very well for quite a lot of years. And yet this debt crisis has set that back dramatically and had consumers who are otherwise increasingly enjoying middle-class lifestyles suddenly struggling to afford basic necessities and not having fuel to put in their cars. So, yeah, I would certainly emphasize the endogenous growth factors, but you can never ignore events and crises because the depth of the setbacks and the scars they leave are very, very great. And so both sides of the coin are relevant. Yes. Reassuring to know that there is a dynamic here that these are things are in counterpoint to each other. And the underlying sort of, thing, I'll use frame to GDP per capita. So that could be either consumption or productivity driven, but either way, it's a per capita growth. And on the one hand, and then these uh, overreach essentially and movements, of course, in the global interest rate environment be affecting that raising the costs of that growth to points where you did not expect it before. So I guess that would be the framing on that. For years, observers have talked about Asia's massive future potential, but the future arrived even faster than expected. The question is no longer how quickly Asia will rise, it is how Asia will lead. Keep listening to the Future of Asia podcast. Let's turn then a little bit more to the specifics of this growth. And we are building on what you were just saying. It's no longer about the demographics or as much about the demographics. What's underpinning this if it's not population or demographics? Most fundamentally, I don't think there's anything particularly new here. The emergence of global value chains, of peace and stability in Asia, there's been a broad set of factors that have led to. The, the economic growth of Asia over the last few decades. And they're broadly still in place. Globalization, accessibility of technology transfer, capital investments in these countries. So, so the big picture hasn't changed. But what's interesting is to look at what makes the difference between a sort of 8% Vietnam-type growth and a 5% Indonesia-type growth. I mean, they're both very good, but obviously one type of transition is happening faster than the other. And it largely comes down to things like education and effectiveness of state capacity. So can you really mobilize the whole nation to transform itself very, very quickly, as happened in China? Or is it a little bit more of a chaotic bottom-up growth trajectory which is probably a little bit more the case in India and Indonesia, where there are more, you know, there's democracy, 
And I was struck by, at the beginning of this uh, discussion about why growth, you mentioned two factors, global value chains and their development, and peace and security. I think it might come as something of a, would say, a surprise, but perhaps a new idea that Asia has had this unprecedented sort of period of uh, relatively <laughs> unbroken peace and security. And I'm not asking for a prediction on this one, but would you say that has been a, an underpinning, I think you said it was an underpinning factor. Are there reasons for concern about that going forward? I do think it's been a, an enormously underpinning factor. It's very easy to forget how insecure the world was just sort of a few decades ago and the number of countries in Asia that have been racked by civil wars or border wars within our lifetimes and how that has largely gone away. And I do think that's been an enormous factor in the region's growth story. Are there reasons for concern? And obviously, the sort of elephant lurking behind your question there is, I think, well, Russia and Ukraine, but also tension between the US and China. I think it's a slightly different kind of insecurity when you get that level of state-to-state competition. We obviously see that with the US and China in this region, although less, well, India and Pakistan as well. So there are state-to-state tensions, but that's a little bit different from the kind of internal insecurity that makes it hard to grow. So if you look at, for example, the situation in Indonesia a few decades ago, or Sri Lanka today is another interesting example. Well, you previously had the civil war in Sri Lanka. That makes it so, so hard for an economy to develop because you have fundamental internal insecurity. You can't invest with confidence that your own policy is secure. And I don't see that re-emerging around Asia. So I guess we should all be very concerned about the re-emergence of great power tensions and the re-emergence of the imperialist war of conquest in Europe. But I don't think we should worry about the re-emergence of internal insecurity that threatens the Asian growth model. I, I don't really see that anywhere. Well, let's cross our fingers on that one. And I think it's just an interesting reality of the Asian experience is that we have been largely successful in quieting those tensions. And it's been drowned, and I love your phrase, in a sea of relentless growth. (laughs) So there have been good reasons for people to set aside their differences and get back to building an economy. But let's now look at some of the other broader themes that I think people raise, one of which is sustainability. I mean, I think that's really become a hot topic, certainly, but also do you see it as a reality in the sense of uh, investments being made, value chains evolving, consequences either mitigated or adapted to? What's the outlook for sustainability in the coming year? Well, obviously, sustainability is a huge driver. When I talk to people in Asia about sustainability, I do think that they see it a little bit differently from people in the US or Europe who may be seeing sustainability as a fundamental objective in itself. And that then leads them to take certain actions. In Asia, I see it more that business has come to see sustainability as an important factor in their ultimate markets, whether that's Asian consumers, but also European and American consumers. They see a global shift in all sorts of policy arenas to take sustainability seriously. 
and therefore there's just a very pragmatic business adaptation saying right sustainability matters we need to show that we're making a contribution to it we need to be aware that it may fundamentally affect certain parts of our business so we're going to get on and deal with that and that tends to be how you see asian businesses responding to sustainability what what you don't see very much of i don't think is businesses which are predicating themselves on sustainability as a concept and driver in itself. Maybe you know some examples of that, Jonathan. I haven't seen so many in Asia. No, I think that's right. Sustainability for sustainability's sake, pure and simple, seems to be less, well, it's a bit hard to define that because I don't think any company anywhere would sort of abandon their mandate for shareholder returns entirely, or so they won't be a company for very long if they do. We mentioned briefly electric vehicles. Let's uh, go there. I mean, one could argue that an electric vehicle is a sustainable version of, of automotive transport. But on the other hand, one could also say it's simply a better technology. <laughs> so that it has other co-benefits, so sustainability and carbon emissions being one of them. I don't know. How would you think of that as you look at that value chain? What's going to be driving it? I think that it's a little of both, but most fundamentally for Asia, and let's talk about two specific countries, China and Indonesia. Most fundamentally, I think it's an enormous business opportunity. And what's coming is just a complete upending of the traditional automotive industry and automotive supply chain. I and mean, I try to write things about this because I think people in the US, Japan, just have no idea what's coming in the wave of. Chinese produced electric vehicles, the number of Chinese EV companies which are rapidly emerging, the sort of productivity and cost advantage they're going to be able to bring to bear is just going to be dramatic. And I really think this is going to be one of the big business stories of the next five to 10 years. So is it sustainability? Is it technologically better? Well, we know that sustainability is driving people towards EVs in many countries. I'm not sure you can say it's technologically better, but it works and it works well enough. And the economics of EVs are so different to internal combustion engine vehicles because they're such simple products. I often say it's like the toy car my son has, which just has a battery and a little motor. You put it down on the floor and off it goes. There's very little fundamental difference between that and a consumer electric vehicle. It's just bigger and it's got a steering wheel and some other bells and whistles. But you know, there's only about 20 components in the drivetrain of that thing. It's a motor and some wheels. There's not much more to it. So, and going back to where I started, for China, it's an enormous opportunity to break into the global automotive industry and become potentially the dominant car producer for the world. And for Indonesia, which is a big raw material supplier for batteries, it's an opportunity for commodity exports, but also it's uh, the industrial strategy in Indonesia is focused on banning exports of the raw commodities because they want to move up the value chain and become a, a big producer of batteries. And I think that's a very realistic prospect as well. So this is as much about the industry structure that we have had for decades and the disruption to that and sort of the, the opportunity that creates as it is about the 
regulatory or consumer pull from you know, around sustainability and just simply the, the pure push on achieving any given set of net zero targets. Is that what I hear you saying that actually we should focus on that? In Asia, looking at it from Asia, I don't think sustainability is the driver. I don't think technology is the driver. I think that pure raw business opportunity is the driver. One interesting question down the line becomes if, as I suspect, this industry does concentrate in China and we do see booming Chinese exports of EVs, does the conversation in Europe and America then change and say, oh gosh, we focused on sustainability and in the process we're killing our auto industry? And does the sustainability regulatory drivers actually reduce in those markets because it's having such a a negative economic effect on their own industries. So that's a sort of separate question. But when I look at it from Asia, I don't see a huge drive for sustainability leading to a shift to EVs. I see the fundamental ability to succeed in this technology and drive a, a disruption of the global auto industry that seems to me to be far more of the driver here. Although, of course, you know, there are EV subsidies in China, and that is an important factor in getting the industry going there. It's the economics, I hear you saying, that are driving this and the opportunity to have a better set. At the very least, that's what's interesting to me, sitting where I sit. Yeah. Last question on this environment, just because I think that there are some very interesting players out there who, for example, would, you know, so redefining the driving experience itself and looking beyond EV to AVs to, you know, the more idea of a car as a digital streaming device, or in the case of as a storage for a battery, that that becomes the profit and business opportunity. And so it seems simply a means to a big, even bigger end. Uh, any, any thoughts on whether 2023 might see that some of those players start to break out or whether that, that model or that business case might become a visible driver of all this? I think 2023 is probably a little early for that, but it's interesting to compare the vehicle with other products that went from being analog in some sense to being digital. And if you think what happened, well, you had your Walkman and you were playing cassettes. And when that first went digital, you got the iPod and the user interface was suddenly quite different but it was still a little black box that sat in your pocket. And it was conceptually, in the way you used it, it wasn't that different from the predecessor analog technology of playing cassettes. It was considerably better, but it wasn't fundamentally, the form factor was quite similar. The way you used it was quite similar. But then you look what's happened since, now that music is digitized and the way it's consumed has changed completely. It's changed the business model, and we've ended up with the streaming business model, which seems to be the endpoint for the economics of music. And the device has changed from being a separate player to usually being your phone. It's connected. So the point is that the initial transition is quite straightforward. So, And I think the same will happen with EVs and sort of digital autos. Initially, you just get a digitized automobile, which is very similar to the previous automobile. And that's probably where we are in this, this transition, and we will be for a few more years yet. But then once you've done that, you sort of untether yourself from the traditional design factors, and all sorts of things start to become possible. 
and you see well, obviously autonomous driving is a big you know lots of people working to make that real i think it's still some way off but then all sorts of things about how you use the vehicle what it actually is once you're untethered from the traditional technological design factors then device itself will change in all sorts of ways that may be quite hard to anticipate right now yeah, well, that I'm minded of, uh, I remember hearing, I think it was Hans Vesberg saying that, uh, generally speaking, the usages of our technologies are not the things that we ultimately, we first built them for. <laughs> so the Roman road was built for the legions, and then it wound up becoming the commercial arteries of the empire. And similarly, we, we spend a lot of time and money on the internet to do voice, and then we realize actually it's for data. So interesting. Well, let's keep an eye on that space. Any other business opportunities related to sustainability beyond EVs that companies should keep an eye on? That's an interesting thought. There are obviously lots of other technologies out there which are still vying for their place. I, when I was in Japan, I covered hydrogen a lot. I'm not persuaded that the economics of hydrogen are going to work, but it's still a very interesting technology. And there's a whole other value chain potentially associated with that. One of the things people in Japan would talk about is the idea of importing green hydrogen from places like Australia, where the sort of vision is you would have huge parts of Australia covered in solar panels, generating hydrogen, which would then be shipped in tankers to Japan to meet Japan's energy needs. So there's people still working on trying to do things like that. I think there's a whole set of negative, almost, opportunities around sustainability where pressure to change existing practices whether it's fishing of tuna because all the consumers in asia there's not enough tuna for them so how the region manages its fisheries how that resource is distributed is going to be a big conversation around deforestation palm oil production in indonesia and malaysia these are really big conversations where sustainability concerns are going to have a very large impact on business in the region. And so trying to find the opportunity is thinking, well, if regulation stops us doing that, then what is going to be the consequence? What's going to come in instead? And, and how do we get involved in it? My never-ending stream of quotes uh, from uh, Warren Buffett was saying, always much easier to short the losers than to pick the winners. <laughs> Indeed. It's an interesting landscape. That's very optimistic. I have to say, I mean, the tone of our conversation so far feels like, you know, Asia is this going to be a relatively prosperous year, all things considered. There's more tension, there's more flare-ups, but there's this underlying driver. First of all, do I get that feel from this? And then secondly, a lot of people say from a more long-term point of view, I think including ourselves many times, uh, that this will be the Asian century. Would you subscribe to that or how would you caveat it? Certainly, you're absolutely right on the first. One of the great joys of working with Asia is that you have this fundamental basis of optimism and progress and growth to work from. And we have colleagues come from London and it's always very fretful in London and there's concerns about this or that. And it, but you just don't have that in Asia. There's always a, a basis for feeling positive about things. But certainly in the economic sense, it's definitely going to be the Pacific century. Whether we remember it as the Pacific century or the Asian century is an interesting question because I still think that the US is the heart of the world economy, the heart of technological progress, and we don't yet see much sign of Asia 
beginning to take away that title. I think the real question is whether Asia can have the social, political, and cultural weight to match its economic heft, because we just don't see that at the moment. We still live in a sort of Euro-American world when it comes to the systems that we live in. And I don't think even within Asia, there people still look to the US as the model for what they want to be. And while that's the case, I'm not sure that a region called Asia is going to be quite ready to step up and make it the Asian century. But that's always a work in progress. So who knows what it's going to look like in 20 or 30 years' time. Yeah, I think it's an interesting conundrum. I think there's a desire from a worldview that says, as one system emerges, these are the institutions that represent it and that become the standard barrier. So we can say, as you say, that it's an Asian century because we see these things happening. But the characteristic of Asia in many ways is, is that the, the institutions of Asia are... Uh, <laughs> Well, let's say, let's say fragmented, to be polite. It's always, of course, very silly to talk about a place called Asia. I mean, this is, a, again, a frustration. that There is at least three different Asias, and probably more. And it's a huge, huge region. So I'm not sure whether Asia needs pan-Asian political institutions, but certainly to be the leader, to be the place that sets the agenda, then your institutions have to be attractive to others. And that's something that the region has not yet developed. Indeed. I think that, in fact, it's characterized, as you say, by the absence of that, which uh, leads the rest of us to, first of all, have quite a varied landscape to investigate, lots to look at. And the only way to do it is to go out and be uh, bottom up and sort of get, as you mentioned, a bit before. Well, very much so. And that's fundamentally what we do as journalists and what we offer to you as readers out there is we have people on the ground and their job, and I'm on the phone telling them to do this every day, is to get out there, talk to people, tell me what's going on. I don't want you sitting in your office and coming up with theories about the country you're in. Go out and give us the voices of the people who are there so that we can get a sense, we can get a feel for what's happening on the ground. Great. More of those stories, please, Robin, in 2023. Looking forward to that. And again, thank you so much for what has been a pleasure to have this conversation. Thanks, Jonathan. Really enjoyable conversation. You have been listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey and Company. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com slash futureofasia or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.